Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Today, we're taking the posture of storytelling a little bit. A few years ago, on the Monday after Easter, one of my mentors reached out. It was the first Easter message I had ever preached. He reached out on Monday after and said, how did it go? And I said, it was a really beautiful morning. And he said, don't ever change the story. Let Holy Week teach itself. And I thought to myself, well, thanks a lot. You could have told me that on Saturday or something and not the day after Easter. But I've really taken that to heart every year. This is Holy Week. There is such beauty in this story. And so today, we're going to sort of just allow ourselves to sit in the story and allow this Um, truth this week in our own history to really shape us um, on its own terms. So it is true if you have been around church at all or not, you probably know that Christmas gets more commercial press than Easter does. But for people who follow the way of Jesus, Easter week, Holy Week, the resurrection and crucifixion story, it's, it is the highest point of the Christian calendar. And I think that as we enter into this Holy Week, it's important that we see it treated in a special way. A few weeks ago, we went to Guatemala, and I was really struck how the culture there treats all of Lent. We were there in Lent. It wasn't even Holy Week yet. They do this all the way more during Holy Week. So if you can't tell, those are like grass and flowers shaped into art on the streets. And on Holy Week, the entire street will be covered in it. This was just another Sunday in Lent. And it goes even more, pictures of of the Christ and of, of Mary. And this is, can you see in this bad picture, that huge barge thing made of wood is being carried by humans in purple robes. They take turns because it is such hard work and they walk so slowly. You guys, this is in Antigua, Guatemala. The city is shut down. It took us, how long did it take us to even get to our Airbnb? The city is shut down and everyone stops. Why? Because this is about Jesus. This is holy. This is sacred. This season of Lent. And this is the week that they do it up even more. Well, we were sitting in our Airbnb living room when the music started. And we started looking out the window. And I was just blown away with the sacred treatment of this time in the church calendar. And I thought, you know, I've got something to learn from just how holy, how set apart. That's what holy means, is set apart. How set apart this week is. So we lean into this story. We see this as a culminating moment in Jesus's three-ish years of active ministry on earth, all coming to this shocking seeming end at the cross at the end of this week. It's just a crazy culmination moment to the story that we've been following when we follow the walk of Jesus. And all this week, we watch as Jesus willingly and resolutely walks toward the goal, which is that cross. It's shocking because what we're seeing in that moment is God executed on a Roman cross. It's a really, really big deal. Now, yes, there's more to the story after that, but you have to come next week to hear that part of the story. 
So I do hope you'll join us for Easter Sunday too. So leaning into this powerful, important part of the story, we notice if we're reading through any of the gospels that all of the gospels spend a significant portion of their time on this one week in the life and ministry of Jesus, this holy set apart week. Now, for those who are not as familiar, maybe visiting church or newer to even understanding the Bible, um, just so you know, within the Bible, in the beginning of what is now called the New Testament, there are four books, and these are called Gospels. Gospel means good news. What these Gospels are, are the account of the life and ministry of Jesus, as told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes when you're just starting to read in the Bible, you can get a little frustrated. Like, why didn't they consolidate and just make one right version or something like that? But to look at this, we want to see the beauty of what this is. This is the holy, accurate, inspired by the Holy Spirit, involving human word of God. It's amazing. It has all that we need to see about God's character, his will, his promises, all of that. But this is, in fact, ancient texts. They are not needing to bend to our modern sensibilities that are used to fact-checking news sources to see what's exactly right. In fact, in the ancient Near East, it was completely acceptable for biographers, which is who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some time had passed after Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and it was like, it's time to write this stuff down, because it was a storytelling culture, and the people who had been eyewitnesses were passing away just with age, and so they were like, we got to write this down, and it was their ancient culture had a great deal of space for biographers to um, rearrange or conflate events. The goal was not to know exactly the details like we would fact check AP news source or something like that. It's communicating the good news, the gospel message, the good news of God's plans as brought to light in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And each of these four individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit still do have their own uh, catchphrases or pacing or favorite words. You know, your friend always has that phrase that comes up and, you know, um, uh, Mark's is immediately, he's always, everything's immediate with Mark. And you can like kind of get to know Mark's character by his word choice and stuff like that. So it's true of all of them. Their own emphasis to accomplish the same truth, the one truth, the holy truth about Jesus for all of time. So theirs is not to debate whether the attendance moment at the temple when Jesus turned over the tables was happened on Sunday or Monday. Like when exactly did he show up? They're just like, what? Were you? He cleared the temple like someone who had the authority to do that of his own presence. He cleared it. He shocked everybody. That's what we're talking about. It was amazing. That's what all the gospel writers are saying. So I say bring that up because to some people, I don't want you to get frustrated. If you're new to scripture, I highly recommend that you start with the gospels, maybe even not even Genesis, um, just to get to know God through Jesus. But if it's frustrating at all, I did bring this. I couldn't make it into a picture. You can't really see it anyway. This is a wonderful study Bible, and it basically makes a map and a timeline of what all of the gospel writers are agreeing
staying on, on what happened during this whole Holy Week. I'm going to leave this up here if you want to take a peek. Because for some of us, it's like these stories, they're not exactly saying the same thing in the same order. I can get confused. And it's nice to have it sort of put together in one place. But here's what I want us to know. All four gospel writers spend a huge portion of their time on this culminating event that we call Passion Week. The passion of God is demonstrated in this Holy Week in the life of Jesus. And they're willing to admit in some of the cases, like we are writing this with 2020 hindsight. We didn't see it until later that this is what Jesus meant. It's so good. It's so real. And they were able to put this richness in, looking back and seeing that there was significance that maybe they didn't even get in real time. And that's what we're going to look at today, looking at the reading that Aaron um, shared with us today. So we know, for some of you who are here, in our recent study of Luke, we talked about it. This momentum towards Jerusalem was like a huge crescendo in the Gospels. It was like, this is where we are headed. And all of these messages were like, this This was going to be a huge moment when the disciples and the followers of Jesus finally got to Jerusalem. And so we feel, if we backed up our reading, we feel a sense of anticipation and culmination, like, this is it. This is what we've been going towards for a long time. That's kind of the sense we get. And this is happening now, this moment, what the uh, Bible uh translators often kind of call the triumphant entry. Um, this moment is happening at a very important time to Jewish cultural imagination. It's happening during the feast of Passover. So here Jesus arrives during Passover to this city with the holy temple where is God's dwelling place. Throngs of travelers would be coming to Jerusalem for this festival moment, honoring God's deliverance as recorded in the book of Exodus during the first Passover, God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And the Passover lamb, this perfect sacrifice, the spilling of blood from a perfect lamb over your doorpost saved you from death. It was like literal saving. We're being saved from slavery. We're being saved from death because of this sacrificial lamb. Death will pass over our home, and we have been saved by God. And all throughout Scripture, the Jewish people pointed back to that liberation that happened in that moment and all of Scripture that they knew and studied and leaned on, promised that God would do it again, that saving would come again. And a lot of that language about um, suffering servants and coming messiahs, all of these images were to be evoked. And this Passover moment, many people believed that this city of David, the city on a hill, that the king from the line of David would come and do a saving work again. People were on high alert, and we know that this is the week when Jesus decides to come. God has delivered us before. He will deliver us again when we're waiting 400 years of silence since the last prophetic word. So, but they knew their holy scriptures and they knew that this promise was still out there. So all throughout the week before this city, you guys, it would be a buzz. I read one time an estimation. I don't even know how people know, but people study things. And so I don't have to, that it would be like six sides times their normal population during this Passover week, because people prepared all week for this festival. But then it was Friday when you actually sacrificed the lamb and had your feast. And so, okay. 
where have we just come from? Because I like to back up a little and know where we've come from. So John tells us that before coming into this, this uh, moment, this triumphant entry, that Jesus and his disciples have just spent time at the house of um, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. These are three siblings that we see multiple times throughout the Gospels, dear friends of Jesus. And it wasn't all that long ago that Jesus actually healed Lazarus from actually death. He brought him back from the dead. I can't cover that story now, but it was a super big deal, you guys, and word got out that this had happened. And so John tells us that as they started to come towards Jerusalem, some of the people following were the ones who had seen this Lazarus miracle, and they were like, you know, the anticipation, you guys, your mind's just been blown. They are watching with such excitement and such anticipation. But I love this little fact that before coming in, before God's self is shown through Jesus, walks this road into Jerusalem and into his final week, he spent this time with dear, dear friends where sweet Mary has anointed his feet with costly perfume and cleaned them with her hair in this gesture of abundant love. And he receives that honoring as her anointing for his burial. You guys, he knows what's coming. And he's just received this tender gesture from a beloved friend who washes his feet before they take him resolutely towards this incredibly challenging week ahead. And so then after that, that happened on Friday, Saturday, we are safe to assume that he had Sabbath rest with his friends. I know a bunch of us have been practicing Sabbath lately, and I just love to think that like that's when we've talked about humanity operating out of Sabbath rest, not coming crashing into it. Like Jesus walked this path coming out of Sabbath rest. I love that. So he comes Comes and it's time to enter the city. Okay, all that is backdrop to get us towards the city. But feel the expectancy of the people in this crowd, right? Feel the anticipation of people who are waiting for this moment to happen, and then Jesus comes in. Now, it's interesting, if we have come to be familiar with some of the Gospels, we notice that Jesus walks all the time. There is no other spot where Jesus needs a ride. He never does. So we notice when something is different like that, it's worth pausing and saying like, does that mean something that I just don't get at all? And the answer to this is yes. In their culture, a Roman soldier or a king could commandeer your animal just with a word. My Lord needs it. Well, okay. And so the giving of this animal would symbolize that somebody has already said, the king's here. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus is leaning in on that as he walks in or rides in rather to the city. And so I think, oh, look at me. I'm all fuddled up here. I think I just have it on, um, on the screen. Oh, that's the other one. I didn't read that. That's when Mary anoints the feet. Um, when he came to the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so uh, we see that the people are accepting these as signs. They're saying like, I saw this sign. He just commandeered an animal and I am now turning to 
to praise the king. I'm accepting this as a sign of his kingdom coming in. They celebrate him as the coming king. And this points back, this moment points back to uh, Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Uh, Zion is another name for uh, Jerusalem, holy hill. Uh, Jerusalem, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, what's with this? So in Old Testament images, which the people would know, a defeating, victorious military leader would come and parade like this into the conquered city on a war horse. But it was known that there were also images of peaceful processions using donkeys in Judges, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings. So they know these stories like this means a peaceful king. This is super good news. He's coming on a donkey. And the responses in the Old Testament include throwing down cloaks and hailing him as the king. It's in 2 Kings 9 13. So they do this. You guys, they know their scriptures. They know their story. They know these are the signs. I am throwing down my cloak. It is happening. This is the coming king that we have been waiting for. So they cry out the words of Psalm 18, 25 to 26, which says this, Lord, save us. As Sam said, save us. The Greek is Hosanna. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you like you're here we're blessing you we're so excited but of course we also know that with this joy and anticipation and celebration there are definitely some who are very upset saying this is blasphemy you can't take on that title of king what are you thinking this is not okay and he they say to him rebuke them tell them to cut it out that's not okay and Jesus says I tell you he replied if they keep quiet the stones will cry out That's a big, big claim as well. One that is uh, pointing us back to the prophet Isaiah in 55 verse 12. They're talking about God's purpose will come to pass. It will not go out void. The purpose will come to pass. And scripture says this, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. It's saying, listen, if God is up to this, all of creation will cry out. You can't stop them by rebuking anybody. That saying, God's purposes, all of creation knows that this is what's on, God is on the move. You can't stop this. And the crowds are thrilled. Hosanna, save us, save us. God, save us. The king is here. And the Pharisees are agitated. This can't be. This isn't what it's supposed to look like. And what does Jesus do? Jesus weeps. Jesus approaches this city, the goal and the culmination of his earthly ministry, and as he approaches, he begins to weep. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And this does come, oh, it goes on, I'm sorry. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and all your children with your walls. You guys, this happens. In 70 AD, uh, Rome overtakes Jerusalem, destroys the temple. It's a hot mess. The people are enslaved and killed. This, in fact, does come to pass. And 
This is a moment of huge devastation to the Jewish people, but I believe Jesus is weeping because what he's been saying all along is, I'm bringing a kingdom that is not confined to this city anymore. That 70 AD prophecy, that's not the end of God's temple presence. I've ushered in something else. God's presence is moving out beyond these temple walls to my followers through the spirit, all the stuff that we celebrate as the people of God. So what I feel, what I experience when I allow myself to sit in this moment is this palpable weight of these intense emotions coexisting in one space. This amazing anticipation. You know when you get like beyond butterflies, you're anticipating something so much? I can feel that. We throw down our coats to honor you. We sing you praise. We're here. We're waving palms. We're making a big deal. I feel that just bubbly excitement and I feel the heart that is heavy enough in Christ Jesus that he weeps. He's not mad at this city, the people or the temple. He weeps with a longing for God's people. He is longing for them to know what his message is really about, the kingdom he's ushering in. He's longing that this city on a hill would know what could be, what he's been trying to say all along. I love his language as recorded by Matthew in chapter 25. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You guys, this is not tears of wrath. This is tears of a mama's heart that God's self is feeling through Christ Jesus. It is the brokenness of a mother's aching heart, longing to protect, longing to gather up, to, to save Jesus wants to save these babies, save the babies, gather them up. I long to do this, but you would have none of it. That's the weeping Jesus entering this city. As God's self, God is uh, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and every one is a fullness of God. We see God's aching heart in Jesus to long for a wayward child, like a mom would long for a wayward child more than we can ever imagine. That's whose heart is entering this city with tears, is a mama bear aching heart of God as demonstrated in this man Jesus from Nazareth riding on this colt in a triumphant entry marked with tears. I just feel the weight, the tension of that heaviness of heart. And even with this heaviness of heart, Jesus accepts their accolades of the coming king. Humble, signaling peace and not war. And we can see with this juxtaposition, right, the tension of those two feelings, that he is accepting this as, yes, this is my self-revelation. You're right, I am king. But we also see in this, he's willing to let this be provocative, let's just say. He is provoking the ones who are so upset at this too. You guys, Jesus does not back down one bit. He does go towards that temple. And you know what he's doing there? When he's clearing those money tables and the traders, those people 
had to be there. You've traveled really far. You can't have brought your sacrifice with you. It's just a necessity. But they had allowed, the leaders of the temple had allowed those business people to come into the temple significantly into the court of the Gentiles. The one place in the holy temple where everyone, everyone can come and worship. Jew and Gentile alike. And the leaders had allowed that space to be changed into a marketplace. And that's why Jesus was so enraged. No, this is a place for all to come and worship Yahweh. You don't get to trade here. And they were so upset because of course he had to have some level of authority to claim the right of what can and cannot be done in my house. Jesus doesn't back down one bit. Matthew 21, 13, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The children were singing, save us, son of David, save us. And the leaders are saying, who gave you the authority to do these things? We feel that tension in all of these encounters. The weight of his heart, his passion, his love, surrounded by these shouts. I think encouraged, bless you, by these shouts saying, save us, save us. As he keeps on going, even though some are so mad, he's met with angers. He's met with crowds who are just waiting to be wowed again who's he going to heal next what's going to happen next almost I think in some people's minds probably like a show I just want to see the next thing like I don't know and some faithful as well some of his followers who were truly devoted and loved him what a mixed bag and in all of this those feet that had been anointed by sweet Mary keep walking resolutely forward in the tension of every bit of this week and that's why we see in every one of these moments this heartbreaking, painful, extravagant love of God throughout all of Holy Week. I used to see this week a little bit differently if I'm honest with you, if I'm honest with myself. I used to be a little bit afraid to look too long at the cross. The message of the cross was that I was a big wreck and I just couldn't say I was sorry enough to wash the message that I was still a wreck. People use words like wrath, punishment, and I just felt like, is there some kind of like really mad God who's kind of getting a little close to child sacrifice, but he's a grown up? What's the message here? And I would have a hard time looking too much at the cross, but then I came to a place of just being honest with you guys now. I came to really see what it meant that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. We read in Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When we see the Holy Spirit move in a moment of prayer with an image or a healing, we're seeing God at work. When we see Christ Jesus do something, take on, cry, we're seeing the fullness of God at work. When we see the 
creator God, when we see Father God, this is God's fullness of self. And so what we see when we see Jesus doing something, we're seeing God do something. And only God could accomplish this level of saving us. Hosanna, Hosanna-ing. Only God could Hosanna this well. And through this week, I'm blown away at the ways that Jesus responds as God's self. Every Hosanna, save us. I am. I am. That's what I'm doing right now when I clear this temple. That's what I'm doing right now, even if it's not how you had it in mind. I think of him knowing when Mary anointed his feet. Yes, I'm saving you, my dear, faithful, honoring friend. That one may have been a little easier than some of the ones still to come. I think about when people cried out on his way in, just looking for the next miracle show. Yes, I am saving you too. I'm trying to save you too. Weeping over Jerusalem, you can't see it. I want to gather you up like my babies, but you don't see it. Yes, Hosanna, I am saving you too. In the temple courts, to the crowds, to the rising tensions, yes, I am saving you. He responds to these tensions, by the way. We see um, throughout the rest of the day, Tuesday and Wednesday, with this amazing, rich discourse of teaching about kingdom truth bombs again and again. So much rich teaching, so many crowds. My introvert side feels exhausted to think that you'd be walking this week and need to be dealing with all the crowds and the teaching for this long. But Jesus does it with his feet still resolutely set on this path because it's God's own love. Hosanna. Yes, I am doing that. I am saving you. But perhaps the two that I love the most in Holy Week, the two that knock me off my feet when I stop to consider them are Judas and Peter. Judas and Peter are two of the 12 who follow Jesus, representing the tribes of Israel. He's been called. They've been teaching uh, them especially. They are just... Um, they are meant to carry on this mission as we know we can go into that later anyways they're really super close to Jesus and Jesus has invited these 12 to what we call the last supper celebrated on Thursday and Jesus you guys he made the reservations he planned for the room he knew this was an important event to these followers because stuff was about to go down that they were not going to get it was going to seem chaotic because we're not at next Sunday yet and he knew that was coming and so he set this really special evening and he did a few amazing things John tells us about how he knelt down he the one that these disciples are now calling Messiah. They know we are coming. This is going down. Hosanna-ing is happening here. It's time. He kneels down and he washes all 12 of their feet. And he says that this is an act of service and he wants to serve them. As he serves them, they should serve others. And then he takes the bread and the cup and he institutes what we now call communion every week. And he takes this bread and this cup and he breaks it, symbolizing his own death that's about to come. And he says, take this, receive this bread. It's my body. Receive this wine. It is my blood. I give this freely to you. You guys, Judas was still there. 
Why didn't Jesus wait? I'm about to institute something that my church is going to do every single week for all of time to remember my goodness. I'll maybe just wait till Judas leaves because he leaves right after this moment to go and do the betrayal. I'll do this when the 11 good ones are here. But he doesn't. He kneels down. God's self kneels down and washes Judas's feet. He hands the bread dipped in the wine. And he says, Judas, my body and blood, I give it to you. Your choice is up to you now. And Judas doesn't take it. Judas sleeps. Well, I mean, he may have eaten it first. We don't know. I bet he does. But he changes his mind. You guys, he can't live with his decision. That's just a truth. But what did the God self do? What did Jesus do? He washed the feet and he fed, he gave this free offering to Judas, knowing full well the gospels are clear. Jesus knows that it is in Judas's heart to betray him. God's self does that for Judas. That amazes me. I am blown away that he does this with all knowledge of what's to come. And then the other one is Peter. I love Peter. Peter is so impetuous. Peter's your all-in guy. Wherever you're going, he has like, I'm all in for all of it. Whatever it is, I'm all, you're going to walk on the water? Me too. He's like, I am never going to leave you. I am always going to be here. I, he talks first, thinks later. Like, Peter is so fun. I love Peter. And so in his typical Peter way, during this whole time of discourse, uh, Jesus tells them, like, you guys, tough stuff's going to come. I'm going to go somewhere. You're not going to understand it, and you're not going to be able to come with me. And Peter is like, no way. I am coming wherever we're going. I'm going to be there. And Jesus says, no, actually, I I really do mean it. You you can't go. And um, But Peter's like, yeah, no, I'm going anywhere. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter... Before the rooster crows, which means morning, before morning on this night, you will deny three times that you even know me. You're not going to lay down your life for me. You're going to act like you don't even know me. And of course, Peter says, no, no, but it comes to pass exactly that way. And we see in the the Gospels this moment where the rooster does crow, Peter has indeed denied, and they make eye contact. That one gets me every time, too, because Peter knows, like, man... I failed. It happened this way. But here's why I bring this story up. I love how Jesus responds with the foreknowledge that this is going to happen. I'm going to look at you. You're going to weep bitterly. You're going to feel awful. But know this before it even happens, Peter. I have prayed for you, uh, Simon is his full, Simon Peter, same guy. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers going to happen. I'm telling you, it's the truth. But when it does, not if it does, when you deny me, I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Meaning that you still remember that I have done this thing. I've given you this bread and cup too. Like you have a way back to me. That's the faith that won't fail. Even when you mess up, I pray that your faith won't fail. And I love this. When you turn back, repent, right? When you come back, because you're about to mess up, come on back. It's okay. I've already made a way back for you. And when you do come back, go strengthen your brothers. 
And this is what I love because it reminds me that it is not in our perfection, but in the compassion and humility that can only be born of our brokenness that we get to strengthen one another in our faith. You can't have that kind of compassion and humility for one another when we're all broken up and having a tough time unless you also have done what Peter's done and you just messed up and you turned back again because every single week we take, we receive this bread and this cup to remember that this is the faith that we have been granted freely from Jesus, God's self walking this path of Holy Week. And so I believe in each of these steps, that whisper of that song, those songs that we sung today, I got goosebumps when Steve was singing it, Hosanna, Hosanna. It helped to equip or strengthen or just encourage Jesus to keep on going on in this path that was going to get worse and worse until it could be actually resolved and better. And in his resoluteness to keep moving towards that goal, God's self did every fullest act of self-giving out of love. Heal my heart and make it clean. I love singing that song because it reminds me that Jesus could do that saving work for Judas, for Peter, for every single one. He can do it for all of us as well. I think of Jesus weeping over the city. That's the love of God. I think of Jesus offering bread and cup and looking into Judas's eyes. That's the love of God. It's the love of God that would go on to all that we talk about on Good Friday. It's extravagance. I am no longer afraid to look too closely at this cross because this is the most extravagant claim of our faith. God hung on a Roman cross to offer something to us that we could never do ourselves. That's the Hosanna that we sing. Um, as we go on, I want you to just consider what this week might mean to you if you walk in it slowly and allow these encounters to transform you. Maybe you're the Judas who just needs to be here today to hear God's offer. Like there's nothing in your heart that I don't still offer you this path. This path is for you. If it's for Judas, it's for all of us. This path is offered for you. The kingdom I'm talking about, it is for you. And all you need to do is receive. Maybe you feel a bit like Peter and you just need to hear that the call to return and not give up on faith is one that is a beautiful thing where compassion and humility breeds uh, just a entirely new way to be broken and holy and redeemed in our life together. Or maybe you just needed to sit this morning and think for a minute of the tears in Christ Jesus' eyes and see those as God's self weeping over a kingdom that he ushered in. He longs to usher in more. And think of the words that Steve sang that we all sang, break my heart for what breaks yours. Because Jesus' heart was breaking as he walked towards that kingdom purpose. Break my heart in the way that God's heart breaks. Let me know how how I can walk from earth into eternity, knowing your plans and purposes, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.
Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we honor you. And I am just so acutely aware that there are no words to express the fullness and the bigness of your undying love that would be so radically displayed in all of these encounters with individuals, with the crowds, with forces who were against you, who are people who were denying you and betraying you, and you just kept showing love. And I, my words feel so fumbly and short, so I honor you. We honor you. We thank you. We need help receiving a love that is too big to know what to do with. Um, so Holy Spirit, move in our midst, help to break our heart for what breaks yours and move us in your love to places that um, are for your kingdom purposes right here as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.